16th chapter, where we take as our text the first seven verses and consider the subject of the theologically weaker brother. Romans 15, verses 1 to 7. Hear now God's word. Now we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for that which is good unto edifying. For Christ also pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Now the God of patience and of comfort grant you to be of the same mind, one with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord ye may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, even as Christ also received you to the glory of God. And thus far the reading of God's word. The big religious news in Orange County this week obviously, is the Billy Graham crusade at Anaheim Stadium. Our congregation does not take an active part in that crusade, largely because we are not in heartfelt agreement with many of the religious doctrines and practices of Mr. Graham. Uh, the high visibility given to his presence and ministry in our area, however, does afford us an opportunity to consider how we should relate to those with whom we have differences of doctrine and polity as Christians. This is the subject which I think uh, really suffers uh, because of neglect. It suffers especially in churches like our own, which are tied to the Reformed faith and a Calvinistic heritage, churches which have, I think, in a praiseworthy fashion, wanted to hold staunchly to the truth and the full truth of the scriptures and the whole counsel of God. Uh, these churches, however, such as our own, have often acquired a reputation for being censorious, having a superior mentality, uh, as it were, unaccepting of those who are, at least judged by uh, us, less than ourselves doctrinally. So I think uh, Mr. Graham's presence here in Orange County and our inability to participate fully in his preaching and policies uh, gives us an opportunity to ask just how should we as Christians look upon others, how should we talk about others, and how should we talk to others that we disagree with doctrinally. Now our question pertains, however, not only to well-known teachers or leaders in the Christian community. Last Lord's Day, I had the opportunity to say a few words about Jerry Falwell. Uh, since my family met uh, Reverend Falwell during our vacation, and um, at the very time in which there were many things that I think uh, became evident to me of a praiseworthy fashion in this man's ministry, it was at a time when he was preaching a sermon that was, as I see, uh, horrendously bad and sub-biblical in, uh, in its content and implications. And so um, we do have occasion to see these people with high visibility, like Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell and others, and to try to evaluate them. But my question this morning is not just for the leaders of the Christian community, but you see, it pertains just as much to our next-door neighbors and to our colleagues at work, to our relatives and to our acquaintances who name the name of Christ. 
I'm asking how we should react to fellow Christians when they come from weak churches. How we should react to fellow Christians when they hold to notorious biblical errors. Uh, when they don't measure up on all counts to our understanding of God's word. Let me give you some examples just in case this is completely, you know, missing you. You say, what on earth is he talking about up there? Well, you probably know some Christians who deny predestination, don't you? And you've had some discussions with them about that. You know Christians who are living as though they expect the rapture rather than wanting to gain dominion in the name of God over all areas of life. You know Christians who claim to speak in tongues or to follow those who speak in tongues. You know Christians who go to churches that have no system of church government and no system of discipline. In fact, practice no discipline whatsoever. You know Christians who don't believe in applying God's law to politics. You probably know Christians who are so confused as to tolerate theistic evolution. You know Christians who won't baptize their covenant children, don't you? You know Christians who practice evangelism in such a way as to flatter the sinner in their evangelism. You know Christians who hold to what might be called an easy believism understanding of salvation. Christians who follow the notion of a carnal Christian, that idea. There are Christians with magical ideas of prayer and guidance, and I could go on and on and on. I mean, can you live in Orange County? Can you live in the United States? Can you live in the 20th century and not have run into fellow believers that hold? to such notorious and, in one way, embarrassing biblical errors as these. Of course, you can't. And so, you see, the question I'm raising for you is a question that's very practical. How should you think of such people? How should you talk about such people, and how should you talk to such people? Now, should we suppress all theological disagreements and treat them as irrelevant? Now, that is a major strategy that is promoted in the Christian community. You see, doctrine divides, but love unites. You see, these kind of slogans. But you see, a love that unites apart from doctrine isn't biblical love. Should we suppress all these differences? Should we just say, well, it's really sad, and one day maybe they'll all be gone, but let's just kind of sweep it under the rug? Is that the Christian approach? Or should we rather refuse to fellowship with or to support anybody who has even one theological disagreement with us? You mean you interpret that text this way and I interpret it that way? Then out of my church. We can't have fellowship because we don't see perfectly eye to eye. Should that, on the other hand, be our approach? Should we be quiet to others about differences with fellow believers? I'm put in this situation all the time. It's so awkward. Somebody say, well, what do you think of? And then they'll mention somebody or some campaign or some program or something. And I'm, I'm thinking now, if I tell this unbeliever or another weak believer maybe, all of my disagreements and all the problems, that may create more difficulty right there than just not saying anything at all. Should we just be quiet about it or should we be censorious about those with whom we have differences so that every time somebody's in the room and a name comes up, we should say, ah, but that person is a, and then we put them into their little category and dismiss them right away. In short, I'm asking, how should we react to the theologically weaker brother? Well, to begin with, I want to clarify just exactly the parameters of my discussion. Because, you see, I think the way in which most people fall into error in answering this question is by confusing what they are answering. That is to say, 
I've seen this happen. I've been in the room where you'll have one Christian who holds to a more, uh, you know, the truth at all cost, uh, truth before friendship, censorious approach, and a person who says no, but love and unity and Christian compassion and patience is uh, what we should be showing is the fruit of the Spirit. And the two people are not even talking to each other because, as a matter of fact, they're answering different questions. They're thinking of different situations where what they are saying is perfectly true and applicable, but it isn't, it isn't pertinent to the one we're talking about. And so I'm going to be very clear this morning. I'm going to give you three points here. I am not talking about, I'm, excuse me, I am talking here about Christian brothers and not about those who deny and distort the gospel so badly that God's saving truth is obscured. I am not talking about Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholics this morning. And I am not talking about heretics who have departed from the faith once delivered to the saints. I'm not talking about how you should relate to liberals and to neo-Orthodox people. We cannot, of course, we cannot forget the strictures of the Apostle Paul toward people like the Judaizers, where Paul says in Galatians 1, but though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema. You will not find, I say this in my defense here before I begin a short apologetic here, you will not find someone more dedicated to the idea that those who have departed from the gospel must be singled out, must be exposed, and must be publicly condemned for that. That's exactly what Paul says. Let them be under a curse from God if they preach something other than the gospel. The truth is just that important because the glory of God and the eternal well-being of sinners is at stake. And so I am not talking this morning about those who are heretics or unbelievers even though they may claim the name of Christ. To put it very briefly, our concern is with evangelical Christian brothers, those who hold to the substance of the good news, which is gracious salvation through Christ's atoning death, those who hold to the substance and to its foundation, the supernatural revelation of God in Scripture. When a person gives up the atoning death of Jesus Christ or the foundational authority of Scripture, then, of course, they're out of the ballpark. They're beyond the parameters of what I'm talking about this morning. When the Bible is denied or when the Bible is supplemented and when the work of Christ is not the sole ground of our hope with God, then the evangel, the good news, has been destroyed and destroyed in such a way that there is no possibility of correction or repair. You see, someone who denies the authority of Scripture, I have no road back for that person. I have somebody who... Um, has an incorrect doctrine but believes in the authority of Scripture, I can go and say, well, let's look at the Bible. There is some road back. It's at least possible to work with such a person. But if I have somebody who denies the authority of God's Word or denies the deity of God's Son or believes that he's going to be right with God apart from the saving merits of Jesus Christ, then you see, there is no possibility of repair in a case like that. God may change that person's heart, to be sure, but in terms of my theological evaluation, they put themselves out of the evangel, uh, they put themselves out of the evangelical ballpark. The second thing I need to make very clear here is that not just we're talking about Christian brothers, but we're talking about Christian brothers and sisters. I'm talking about people here. 
I am not talking about their espoused systems of thought. And it's very important, I think, especially important for me to say that because I spend so much of my time in ministry dealing with systems of thought. Theological questions per se. Things that can be written on a piece of paper or an article or a book published about it. But you see, I'm not now, in this sermon, dealing with systems of thought. I'm dealing with people. And there's a world of difference between condemning, say, dispensationalism and condemning a dispensationalist. Dispensationalism as a system of thought per se can only be evaluated for its conformity or its lack of conformity to the truth of God's word. And I am very sensitive and I don't agree at all when people read articles about theological subjects and get upset because the article may be condemning of a theological position and is bringing the heavy artillery of God's word to bear upon it. And they say, oh, but you see, we shouldn't be so judgmental and all that. No, when it comes to a matter of the truth, pure and simple, it either conforms or it doesn't to the Word of God, and that's all you can do with that question. Maybe that's one reason why I'm personally inclined to deal with those sorts of things, because it is, it's a cut and dry matter. Personalities and feelings and persuasion and all that need not, in all cases, be taken into account in that setting. But you see, people are not systems much less pure and consistent systems. People are not that at all, and they are often much better in practice than what they espouse in theory. Let me give you an example that is on my mind a lot these days. Uh, I grew up reform circles. I have endorsed reform principles. I've promoted them. I've been taught in a reformed seminary. I'm an ordained pastor in a reformed denomination. I have taught in a Reformed seminary. I have published in Reformed circles. And I have found more grief and opposition in those circles about a matter that is Puritan, which is historically Reformed, the application of God's law to politics is what I'm thinking of. I found more trouble in those circles than I have found in circles that are Pentecostal and charismatic. Now, what do you make of that? Well, what I make of that is that people are better than their systems. You see, the first people to object to the idea of the Old Testament being applied to politics ought to be Charismatics and Pentecostals. Now, I don't tell them that. I don't say, now, look, if you were living up to your theology, you would hate what I'm saying. No, I say, well, no, come more with me this way. Let's draw you away from that bad theology. But you see, people who should be closer to the truth on that and more willing to hear it have given more grief to me and to others over it. Now that should teach you something, it should teach me something, and that's that people are not systems, and where we might write an article against a system of thought, it may not in all respects apply to the person who says he or she affirms that system, because they don't do it purely and consistently. And so the evaluation of a person according to the Word of God is a much more complex thing than evaluating what he says doctrinally. I think Acts 18 gives us a good example here where we read that Aquila and Priscilla, who firmly disagreed with the theological inadequacy of Apollos, did not reject him personally, but according to the text, expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. They didn't say, okay, here's Apollos, here's his system of preaching, the two are identical, we reject the system of preaching, so we reject Apollos. No, they rather said Apollos is a brother, and they went and they expounded to him more accurately 
that system of truth. So my first parameter here, I am not talking about heretics and unbelievers who name the name of Christ. I'm talking about evangelical Christian brothers. Secondly, I'm talking about them as people, not as systems of thought. And thirdly, this morning, I'm talking about teachable and reformable Christian brothers who have not fallen into such moral disobedience as to make them subject to church censure, provided they went to a church that believed in censure, which they usually don't. I don't forget what Paul says here, his directive in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother who walks disorderly. And if any man obeys not our word by this epistle, note that man in order that, he may, that you may have no company with him to the end that he may be ashamed. And yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see, there are people who name the name of Christ in an evangelical way who nevertheless are living in such sin, say sexual looseness, or uh, absolute disregard for worshiping God and attending church, whatever it may be, that we do have biblical requirements about their behavior or their misbehavior that we have to live up to. And maybe we have to withdraw ourselves from a, Christ, a professing Christian brother who has gotten himself or herself into such a sinful state that uh, they need to be shamed back into obedience. Okay, so I'm not forgetting any of these things. Please remember that. But with these very strict parameters in mind, I'd like us to um, ask how we should think of how we should talk to and talk about Christian brothers as persons who affirm the gospel and are trying to live according to it. And I'm going to give you five principles from Romans 15 and then ten commandments about how to apply them. Okay? So five principles from Romans 15 that we can see here. First, a word about the context of Romans 15. Romans 15 follows Romans 14. You probably could have figured that out without me telling you. But you need to know the content of Romans 14 if Romans 15 is going to have its appropriate uh, uh, bearing in your life. In Romans 14, Paul takes up the question of the weaker brother. The weaker and the stronger brother. And they're not getting along because, you see, they have disagreements over matters of scruples in the Christian life. Scruples about meat and drink and scruples about days to be special religious days to be observed. And this is dividing the Christian congregation in Rome. And so Paul takes up this question and gives some principles which, if I had time this morning, I'd love to go into, having to do with adiaphora and brotherly love and unity in the congregation, that sort of thing. You need to remember, however, those scruples are not simply matters of lifestyle. They are matters of lifestyle that are rooted in a different theological understanding. They come from the way people think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so what Paul has to say about the weaker brother and treating the weaker brother in terms of lifestyle and scruple applies just as much to theological differences that give rise to such scruples and differences within the congregation. And so in Romans 15, Paul now kind of brings all this together, and I'm going to apply it to our theologically weaker brother here. Notice he says, Now... We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. The first thing that you have to recognize here is that the Bible clearly distinguishes between truth and error, strength and weakness in the Christian life. I mean, somebody would be way off base to go to this passage and prove that we should never judge another person, wouldn't they? 
Because you see, what's implicit in Paul saying that so-and-so is a weaker brother? What's implicit is a judgment about that brother, that he is weaker, and about others that they are stronger. And there's no question that in the use of this language, Paul is siding with the stronger. Paul says we must distinguish between right and wrong, truth and error, and Paul sides with the stronger, and so must we. And so anybody who approaches the question that I've raised for you this morning with the idea that, well, let's just suppress the truth, not worry about these differences, is not being biblical. And I don't propose that at all. The first thing we see is, yes, there is a strong and there is a weak position, and we should be drawn to the stronger. The second principle we see in Romans 15 is that the truth of God's revelation is crucial as well as being practically important. It is not an idle or indifferent matter. In verse 4, Paul says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. Everything that God has revealed, every bit of the Bible is for our learning. And when we say we don't care whether we've learned doctrine correctly, and we don't care whether we've got these matters worked out in an accurate, God-pleasing way, then we aren't honoring the truth of God, the Scriptures. And the Bible says these are so that we might have hope. We're actually undermining the foundation, the practical, emotional, personal foundation of our lives when we don't think doctrine is important. So my first point is we must clearly distinguish between strong and weak positions and side with the strong. And secondly, we must think that the truth of God's revelation is crucial and practically important to our lives. But the third principle you see in Romans 15 is that the stronger should seek to please and edify the weaker, with Christ being the supreme example of that. Verses 1 and 2. The stronger should seek to edify the weaker. Now we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for that which is good unto edifying. Paul does not call for the stronger to give way to the, the whims and the desires of the weaker. He's saying, oh, well, of course, in Christian love and patience, we're supposed to say whatever you want us to say and do whatever you want us to do. That isn't his idea of bearing the infirmity of the weak. It is rather unto edifying that we bear up the weaker brother. And he says in verse 3 that Christ is the supreme example. For Christ also pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. How did Christ live his life? I mean, if you want to talk about stronger and weaker theologians, stronger and weaker brothers, stronger and weaker lifestyles, I mean, who is the strongest but our Lord Jesus Christ, who was above reproach in all things, who was the very mind of God, who could say he was the way, the truth, and the life to men? And what did he do with those who were theologically misconstruing the way of life and, and those who had not understood the Scriptures properly? I mean, his closest, his most intimate followers, the apostles, were constantly getting things wrong theologically. In fact, it got to the point where in the upper room, Jesus said, I've had enough of this, and he goes out to the garden to pray. When they have so thoroughly misconstrued what his life and ministry is about. And he says, enough. I mean, you can see Jesus throwing up his hands and saying, what hope is there for these people? But now, how did Christ live his life as the stronger? In that case, he obviously bore the infirmities of the weak. He lived for their benefit and not for his own convenience 
not for his own glory. So let's review these first three principles. We must clearly recognize truth and error, strength and weakness, and side with the stronger. Secondly, the truth of God's revelation is crucial and practically important. Thirdly, however, the stronger should seek to edify the weaker, with Christ as the supreme example. Now, fourth principle. Our aim in all of this should be unity in doctrine and thus in worship, rather than divisions and superiority. I want to confess to you this morning that as I evaluate my own life and my own heart and motivation, and as I see it in others as well, so often when we engage in doctrinal disagreement, it does not suit the purpose, and nor is it, it seems to me, meant to serve the purpose of bringing us together. It is rather meant to keep us apart. Now you look at your own heart and you know that's true. I don't mean always true, but I mean in, in a number of cases. When you brought up a difference with somebody, it was not so that the two of you might be brought together and move on. Not that the weaker might be strengthened and edified, but it's rather so you might say, we stand apart from that, and I don't agree with this, and the antagonism remains there. Divisions and superiority feelings rather than humility and a drawing together. Look what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and of comfort grants you to be of the same mind one with another. This is the apostle who's just said, I side with the stronger against the weaker. But it's not for the sake of being stronger and superior to the weaker, it's for the sake of coming to be one mind. Grant that you be of the same mind one with another according to Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 6, that with one accord you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why Paul's got it, it seems to me, just right here. The balance is exactly right. On the one hand, he insists upon doctrinal truth. We've got to come to have one mind in these matters, because if we don't, we'll never glorify God with one mouth. <clears throat> and that's an interesting way to look at congregational worship. God says you're supposed to have one mouth. Not a lot of little mouths, like a bunch of little birdies out there chirping away, but one unified mouth. And that one mouth comes from having one mind. People who don't have a common mind theologically can't worship God with one mouth. That's one of the reasons why I oppose the ecumenical movement. As much as I believe the things I'm teaching you this morning, the ecumenical movement says one mouth first, one mind later. Paul has it the other way. He says if you'll have one mind, then you'll be led to worship with one mouth. And that's what we should make our goal. So he insists on truth, but it's truth for the sake of unity, not truth for the sake of superiority. Truth for the sake of drawing together and edifying, not truth for the sake of dividing and keeping us apart. You see that? And the fifth principle we find in verse 7 is very simply that you should receive one another even as Christ also received you to the glory of God. Even as Christ received you. And how did Christ receive you? Christ said, now look, you go back and you study your lessons and when you get all your theology worked out, then come back and you'll be acceptable to me. No, he didn't. He said, with all of your misconceptions, with all of your mistakes, and with all the problems you're going to have working them out, I receive you. I love you, and I forgive you. And Paul says, if Christ has received you that way, in the Christian congregation, you must receive one another. He doesn't say receive and neglect the truth. He doesn't say receive and forget about disciplining, you know, immoral living. 
I've already covered those bases. I just remind you, lest you misconstrue what I'm saying. But Paul says, in the end, we must receive each other. And so, when a person who believes in speaking in tongues, but really does trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, and wants to honor the authority of Scripture, talks to another person who believes in Jesus Christ and honors the Scriptures, but doesn't believe in speaking in tongues, and they can't shake hands, or can't worship with one another, or cannot consider themselves friends and believers, even though they have those disagreements, then Romans 15:7 is being violated. Paul says, receive one another, because Christ received you. Well, I trust um, you see then that there are two principles really at stake in these five that I've given, principle of truth and the principle of graciousness. Truth and grace sounds pretty fundamental to the Bible, doesn't it? Truth and grace. If we become so gracious that we forget the needs of the truth, we're not honoring God. And if we become so concerned with the truth that we lose our graciousness toward others, we aren't honoring the truth of God either. So let me try to give you 10 practical ways to implement these principles that I've laid out. There is some order to them, but uh, I grant that they are, they've been gathering in my mind for some time now as I've been tended to preach this sermon to you. The Ten Commandments of how to honor truth and graciousness in dealing with the weaker brother theologically. First of all, consider your own past growth and gradual development. You know, when I was a younger man, and even to an extent now, you know, the problem I have in dealing with people who disagree with me is that I forget that I didn't come to the truth overnight has been a long process of learning more and more and more and correcting things and getting the system in better order and it's it's not perfect yet but my point is there have been major steps where you see the truth say of infant baptism or the truth of covenant theology or the truth of whatever it may be post-millennialism on and on now once we get to this position of understanding things we turn around and we expect others to come just like that to the whole shooting match and it doesn't work that way. And it's impatient and it's unrealistic of us to expect that. I've never known a man yet who could leap out of bed and land in his pants with both legs and be totally dressed and ready for the day. People just don't go from point one to point two without some steps in between. Let's stop expecting our Arminian or our charismatic or our dispensational or our antinomian or whatever it may be brothers to be leaping out of bed and landing fully dressed and theologically ready to go out to the world. It doesn't happen. We come to them even as we have gone through the process of different states of undress. You know, we may need to help them button their shirt up here or get their socks pulled up or whatever it may be. Let's not expect they're going to be just because we weren't. Remember your past, that you grew gradually, and you may be talking to somebody who's growing gradually, too. Second commandment for implementing these principles. Consider your own present fallibility and need for reform. Don't just remember your past gradual development. Remember that you're not perfect yet. And that as uh, strong as you may think you are, there's need for reform, too in your life. If you're not perfect, then you need to be very patient in dealing with others who are not perfect. And don't ever forget, as, as much as you've studied an issue and as much as you may believe yourself to be right, don't ever forget that it's just possible that even a weaker Christian or a younger Christian might correct you, may have an insight that you somehow missed. 
And if that's possible, then that's really going to affect the way you talk about that person and how you talk to that person. The third principle, our way of implementing here, is don't neglect or despise the gifts, graces, and accomplishments of others. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. Uh, it's remarkable, almost uh, horrifying, actually, in its implication. Here's what Paul says. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's horrifying about that is that it's being written to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, which was full of divisions and full of immorality and full of heretical problems. I mean, if the Corinthian church were my congregation, I think I'd pull my hair out, I'd quit. It was in terrible shape. And Paul nevertheless says, in all, he's going to really lay it on him. He does. But Paul begins by, he says, I recognize the grace of God in your life and the gifts he has given you. Not a bad idea for us to remember that when we have to lay it on thick with somebody, we begin by saying, I recognize God's grace in your life and the gifts that he has given you, the accomplishments that are there. And so you see, though I may have some very strong differences with uh, Billy Graham, I would be the last one to hesitate to praise God that there are people who are actually brought to the Savior through his preaching. Maybe I need to glorify God all the more that he strikes a straight blow with such a crooked stick, but the fact of the matter is God does his work through imperfect instruments. And, you know, I've done far more criticism of Billy Graham's evangelism than I've evangelized. And I'll bet that's true of you, too. Now, am I going to stop criticizing his theology? No. But, you know, when I criticize it, every time I get ready to, I hope I have a good swift kick in the pants to get out there and evangelize more, too, to recognize the gifts and graces and accomplishments of another Christian's life. Fourth principle comes from Philippians 2, verse 3. Count others as better than yourself. Philippians 2, verse 3, one of the most uh, tender passages in the New Testament. Paul says, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself. Lowliness of mind. You know, the one who's calling for this lowliness of mind could be a very censorious apostle, very quick to point out the truth and in in, insisting on error being called down. And yet he did so with lowliness of mind. Paul says we need to count others as better than ourselves. You know, that's a tough thing because we sometimes figure well, what God's asking us to do is to pretend that others are better than us. We really don't think they're better than us, but we're supposed to pretend like this so that we're, we end up being humble. And, you know, and I guess I for a while was drawn to that understanding that whether the person really is better or not, treat them as though they're better than you. But that isn't what he's saying. Because, you know, he goes on to give us his example, cover the passage. Who's the example of treating others better than yourself? 
Who is the example of lowliness of mind and humility? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he were equal with God, did not consider that equality a thing to be grasped after, but made himself of no reputation and emptied himself and became a servant of men and died a criminal's death. No, if Jesus, I mean, if anybody had the right to say, I know these others are not better than me, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus lived in lowliness of mind and treated others as though they were more important than him. And we need to do that even toward our theologically weak brothers. Fifthly, remember the complexity of human nature and the many facets of Christian living. The complexity of human nature. I have known people because of uh, seminary circles, academic circles, what have you. I have known people, without any doubt, who are intellectually superior to others. And yet they have no patience and show very little fruit of the Spirit. Now, what do I do when I compare the person who has patience and the fruit of the Spirit to the person who has theological intelligence? Now, I can make one of, well, there's two errors that are possible here is what I want to say. I can say, well, fruit of the Spirit is more important than truth, and so I evaluate this person better. Or I can say, no, truth is more important than practical lifestyle, so I evaluate this person better. But that isn't what the Bible would have you do. The Bible would say, recognize that it's a mixed bag. Recognize the strength and the weakness. And maybe it isn't all that important to have a bottom line, a net score, so that we find out who is two or three inches ahead of another person in sanctification or theological brilliance. No, I should recognize that in the lives of many Pentecostals with whom I work, God is doing a work that I need to have done in my life. I pray also in all humility that the work God may be doing intellectually and doctrinally in me will be done in them. They need that. But human nature is complex and the demands of the Christian life are complex. God requires holiness of life and obedience as well as profession of the truth. And it's very likely that two different Christians will excel each other in different ways and in different areas. All right, then sixthly, ask yourself what you can learn from your Christian brother, not simply what you can teach him. And I smile because, well, I know that's the problem I've had. I can see a lot that I can teach others. But you see, before I try to teach them or teach others about them, I think it would be a very good spiritual exercise to say, what can I first learn from that person? Since human nature is complex and the demands of the Christian life are complex, and since they undoubtedly excel me in many gifts and graces, then why don't I first learn from them before I go about correcting them? I'm not saying don't correct them. I'm just saying make the first step, what can I learn from that person's life? And as much as I hate to admit it because pride resides, you know, as I look back upon those that uh, I have felt have needed correction, I can hardly think of a case where they didn't have something I needed in my life. Seventhly, speak as graciously and as patiently of them without suppressing the truth or denying it. Speak as graciously and patiently of them as you would wish others to speak of you. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7 really has a bearing here. In the first place, I want you to remember in this chapter on love that Paul has just said, and if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have no love, I am nothing. 
Paul says, if I've got it all doctrinally worked out, and it's in that context that he says, love suffers long, and love is kind. Love doesn't envy, doesn't vaunt itself up, and is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not its own, is not provoked, takes no account of evil, rejoices not in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And when I felt that my reputation has been unjustly besmirched by people and when they haven't been fair in evaluating me, I need to remember that the same kind of charity and patience and fairness needs to be exercised toward them. When I speak, even of the errors of others, I need to speak with patience and fairness and balance. Eighthly, remember that your accomplishment is not your own, but is God's work in your life. Maybe, you know, number eight here may say it all. I, I, I'm not sure, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 7, Paul um, refers to this one, Apollos, that I told you about, who was doctrinally inadequate, and then Aquila and Priscilla brought him along the way. And uh, Paul looks at the divisions in the Corinthian church, and he says, Now these things, brothers, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to go beyond the things which are written, that no one of you be puffed up for the one against the other. For who makes you to differ? And what do you have that you didn't receive? But if you did receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? In the end, I can't evaluate another Christian brother who's theologically weak and be puffed up because do I think it was my own brilliance, my own natural proclivity for the truth of God, my own good state of heart that made it possible for me to achieve theological accomplishments that I may have achieved? Paul says, what do you have that you didn't get from God? And if you got it from God, then what are you puffed up about? Ninthly, broach the subject of differences when you broach the subject of differences for the sake of intended unity, not continued antagonism. Once again, broach the subject of differences when you broach the subject of differences for the sake of intended unity. When we bring these things up to others and when we bring these things up to the people we disagree with, it, be, it should be for the sake of not keeping us apart but drawing us closer together. And then lastly, because the time is so short, each of these calls for some reflection and meditation. I hope you'll give it today, this week, whatever. Pray about each of these. But the tenth point that I would draw to your attention is that you need to exercise a healthy sense of proportion. Not all errors are as fundamental and serious as others. Obviously, a person who denies the sovereignty of God by denying predestination has far greater, far-reaching, and fundamental problems than my Christian brother who disagrees with me on the third-year tithe. And to treat all differences of opinion and all disagreements as though they were all in the same ballpark, as though anybody who has one difference with me is like a Judaizer who is anathema in the eyes of God, isn't honoring God, isn't glorifying Him, and isn't true to the gospel. Right? And so we have these ten principles. I, I won't repeat them. I trust you've written them down. In the end, they come down to let's honor the truth and be gracious about it.
when there are those who are theologically weaker than us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you indeed would be our example, even as our text this morning says that you are, that we would bear with the weaker, that we might work with them for the sake of edification, and that we might do so in true humility, even as you in all humility came to serve us, to bear with us, and to edify us, indeed edify us unto eternal life, build us up, that we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and error to the kingdom of light and truth. And we know this comes not because of any good in us, but only because of your grace. And we want to praise you, above all, for that grace this morning, a grace that has opened our hearts and made us receptive to the truth, a grace that has nurtured us and developed us and helped us to grow as Christians, and a grace which we pray might throb in our lives and work through us in such a way that we would learn to be gracious to others. Not in such a way as to deny the truth, but rather in such a way as to bring all of God's people to it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.